Welcome to the show. I am your host, Todd Dallas-Lamb, and you're listening to On The Clock. On The Clock is a venture with the Strategos Podcast Network, where we feature an array of guests to dive into all things education. We hope you enjoy. Welcome back to On The Clock. My name is Todd Dallas-Lamb, and my guest today is Dr. Dwayne Arbogast. Uh, Dwayne is the Chief Strategy and Innovation Officer for the nationally known uh, and respected Children's Guild uh, Alliance. Uh, Dwayne, thank you for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you. Good afternoon, Todd. So, Dwayne, you and I have known each other quite a while, and um, I I have often referred to you as one of the smartest people I know in education. And that's a a loose term that anybody can throw around, right? But I actually have proof of it. I I, I spent some time today researching my email, and uh, literally about 13 months ago, you and I had a conversation and I was on, uh, I was sending an email to a group of partners, uh, several of whom are former state superintendents. And I wrote the following email. I wrote, I just spoke with a very sharp guy who was this chief academic officer of a massive district in this country, Prince George's County, in, in that case, for, formerly your job. And, and I said, he told me the following. My prediction is that some American schools, if not most, may be closed before the end of the school year or perhaps the start of the new year. That was on Wednesday, February 26 in 2020. And at that point, I can tell you, Dwayne, that that was shocking. Um, most people were laughing at me for even sharing that thought. And uh, a, a few weeks later, it became a prophecy. What did you know that others did not? Well, I to dispel the notion that I'm the smartest guy, <laughs> had I followed my own advice, I would have invested in Zoom and Tractor Supply on yep. February 26th. Um, school systems are very adver- risk adverse. So they're going to make decisions that really are biased towards safety. So as information was getting, there was more and more information about the virus, school systems are going to, wherever the center of the thinking is, they're going to fall to a more conservative side. So I think that was my thinking at the time. Um, That's very true and weather related. So if they're predicting snow or ice, school systems are very quick to close. So, you know, you, you've, you've stumbled upon one of my, my pet peeves. I worked at the U.S. Department of Education, as you know, and I realized that the most fascinating aspect of being a superintendent in, in, on the East Coast, at least, is predicting whether you should close schools based on the weather or not. And it, you almost can't win in, in, in weather, right? If it's not snowy enough, parents are mad. Uh, and if it's if you do open up the schools and it's way too icy and snowy and kids are slipping off of buses, parents are mad. And it seems to me that the the parallel is pretty acute with regards to weather related closures and the way that we've handled the COVID, uh, uh, the COVID in schools in the last 13 months. It, it really is a no win situation, isn't it? Yeah, it absolutely. It's a no win situation. And I think that. Uh, the risk of injury uh, 
dramatically increases, particularly with high school kids that are driving. But it, it's really interesting. I was a principal of a school and we had a fire in our school and it was a small fire. We evacuated a fireman, put the fire out and I called the deputy superintendent and I said, should we close the rest of the day? And he said, Dwayne, the risk is sending kids home like on a one-off where parents might not be home. We actually put the kids more at risk by sending them off on an unannounced day. So, so I think you try to balance those decisions all the time. The advantage of weather is that the entire state knows that the weather's gonna be bad the next day. So when you call it, there is this kind of anticipation, um, uh, anticipatory set. So um, weathermen play it up and we kind of fall into that. So this is, a, I think, a really good metaphor for COVID. As the news plays it up, it makes it easier for a school district to make that more conservative decision. I, I wonder, there's so many ways you can play this story um, with regards to the, the, the positives and the negatives. And I think there are certainly both with the way that, that COVID has played out over the last year. I mean, they certainly, you could make the case now that we perhaps knowing how students transmit the disease, how they, they are as much less unaffected, much more unaffected by the disease than elderly and compromised people that perhaps the case could be made that we probably should have put kids back in school earlier. But then, of course, you have the whole aspect of whether the adults in the school building uh, are are capable of being affected because they're around students. I mean, there was a lot of uncertainty. There's still to this day remains uncertainty. I wonder if you have any thoughts on, uh, you know, 13 months after your prediction, did we, did we basically get it right? Or should we have done something different with regards to school that, that might've been better? Because there's certainly been effects, right, Dwayne? Like there are kids, um, suicide rates are up. Kids have been affected by not going into school. I have anecdotal stories on my own, but I think there's real data to show that, that that there's been a real negative effect of kids not going, even though we're being careful not to to promote the disease any more than we have. I wonder if you have any thoughts on how we've handled this as a as a state here in Maryland, where you are, or nationally. What I've noticed is it's inversely proportionate to the size of the district. So if you're a really small district, uh, I think you can make the decision to reopen much quicker than if you're a really large district. At large districts, you're looking at size of classrooms, facility, transportation. So the, it becomes more and more complex variables. So I think it makes it harder to bring back. Um, our organization actually has two small special education schools, one with 150 students, the other with 50 students. And we also have a charter in DC with 270 students. We actually started bringing kids in in September at our DC charter, kids who were homeless um, or we knew that their home situation was really tough. Then we started bringing in our kids at our special education schools in November. Even though we've had staff that have tested positive and students who have tested positive, the numbers have been very low and not one of them has been related to spread in the school. But we've had small class sizes, you know, lots of social distancing. Kids have been very compliant with masks. Um, so everything that we did appears to have worked. Would it have worked if we were 150,000 student school district bringing everyone back? It's hard to say. The other thing that I think has been a wise move on our part 
is we close on Wednesdays and on Wednesdays we do deep cleaning. So I'm not sure what to attribute our success in keeping um, the spread, but I'm trying to, I'm thinking that the, the cleaning and the spread out has definitely been uh, factors. So I'm not sure all school districts so, have the luxury you know, that we did. Your, your work at the, at the guild um, fairly well nationally known organization that really focuses uh, in, in Maryland. You you have a contract school that really has a focus on special needs students, um, which is a fascinating topic for me personally. I, I have a, uh, some relatives who have special needs um, children. And when I was talking to one of your counterparts in North Carolina about a year ago, one of the things that he said in his role at a very large district uh, in North Carolina was that the, 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 the communication of, of education through Zoom is has real problems with special needs students. Uh, in your capacity at the Children's Guild, did you see that as well? And, and what, what did you guys bring to bear before you could bring them those students in to, to help alleviate that? And what really was the problem? It's interesting. Uh, a lot of the kids we work with, our specialty is in behavior management. And what we do is we create a dual infrastructure of both educators and clinicians and support personnel, behavior coaches, that kind of thing. So that's very true before COVID, and that became very true during COVID. So what we found is as we moved to distance learning, we still needed our behavior coaches, and the behavior coaches had to go in through Zoom, work with the families, or individually coach uh, the child. Now, it was harder with distance learning, but I think it goes to the fact that school systems need to stop thinking about the school structure as a teacher, 25 students, one guidance counselor who has 400 kids on their caseload, a principal. I think there has to be this whole behavioral, emotional infrastructure in schools that include appropriate ratios for case management, for mental health, um, how we do physical activity, occupational therapy. Uh, all of these pieces need to be part of how of the infrastructure of schools. And I think we've done a pretty poor job of building that within. So what you're seeing now is you're seeing the rise of community schools and in the Biden administration plan for Title I, you're seeing a lot of language around community-based organizations working with uh, schools that have concentrations of poverty. My argument is I think that thinking has to be spread beyond just schools with concentrations of poverty. There's trauma at every socioeconomic level. And, and there's been a lot of trauma in the last year. Um, disrupted income, disrupted food, disrupted housing, insecure housing. So this idea of building this family support structure in schools, I think, is the time is right. You, you talk about um, mental health. It, it, it's, it's interesting to me. It's a phrase that it brings to mind the, the aspect that I grew up with in, in school, which was a huge part of American public education for probably the last hundred years, which is physical education. We always in this country put a big emphasis on physical education. We realized, I think, pretty early on that it really mattered to teach young people how to be physical. The mental education, I think, is the next big thing. Um, and we're getting closer to where it used to be education was the three R's. 
But now we're really having to, to, to cover for things that we probably assumed parents would, would deal with. Uh, you know, 100 years ago, we just assumed that the mental education of a student was just fine. We would just focus on those three R's. But mental education, if I had to invest in some stock in education in the next 10 years or 20 years, I would, I would wager that mental health is the next big thing. Would you agree? I would hope that you're right. Yeah. Um, and I think that it's really interesting. I think the timing is right about community-based organizations really engaging with the schools beyond just the idea of community schools. So um, mental health, job placement, English lessons, uh, support for families. I think all of those things are really critical now. And I don't think school systems can do it on their own. So I think this idea of partnership with uh, multiple agencies makes sense. But Todd, one of the things I'm a little worried about is that when you're in the domain of schools, school culture rules. So when you bring in a, a, a second party as a partner, they are usually subservient in the power structure um, in how you work with families. So what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to balance that power structure out so that a clinician has as much power when you're talking about a family as an assistant principal. So that there's some work that has to be done. So backing up a second, what is special needs seems to me to be a, an umbrella that covers quite a lot. What, what is your definition of a special needs student? Well, there's the definition of a student with a disability or a student where English is a second language. What I'm looking at is moving away from poverty as the one criteria that drive that's the lever for services and moving that from poverty to at riskness and this at riskness has is more than just your free and reduced lunch so this is families engagement with social services homelessness insecure housing uh, hospitalization so i think if you have one of these levers then and you move it into at risk that can actually change the funding formulas um, in the District of Columbia, they have actually expanded this definition of at-risk to include levels of special education services and the engagement of Department of Social Services. But the data collection between Department of Social Services, uh, criminal justice, and schools, those data systems don't talk to each other and they don't willingly share information. So we have to kind of break through those data barriers. And then I think, what I would like to see is a case management approach where the school becomes the central referring agency, but once they refer, it pulls together a whole bunch of services. And related to that is what I would call braided funding. So uh, uh, workforce development, Medicaid, school funding are all very, very separate right now. But if you pull the family together, you can actually braid those funding so that all the funding doesn't fall back on just the schools. And I guess the last thing that I wanted to say about this is in the accountability, school systems are held accountable to academic achievement. And there's actually not a lot of metrics around the social well being or the wholeness of a child. And I would love to see a thriving index, a community index where the community is held accountable to how well the children in that community thrive. And I think when we can kind of shared accountability, braided funding streams, 
resolving the differential in power about how you work with a family, I think those are the barriers we have to overcome so that we can really become a, an effective community. I, I was once asked to help a charter school in Washington, D.C. Uh, stay alive. It was under threat of being closed for academic failure. And I, I gathered a group of parents from the school um, to get a sense of what was it about the school that they liked? The parents were very eager to keep the school open. And I asked them, what, what is it you like most about this school? And, and they said point blank, uh, I, I feel like my kids are safe here. Um, safety like was their most incredible concern. And it occurred to me that if my sons were under threat of either health or physical well-being, um, whether they do well in math or, 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 language wouldn't matter at all to me, right? Like my, my first concern is, is to keep them safe and, and happy. And I know that you or your school and others around the area were really focused when kids could not come to school with the most, the other most basic need, right? Like um, feeding the students became a priority for the guild this year. And I imagine other schools that, that do a lot of uh, feeding of students and their families. What, what was that like for you guys this year? So the um, I, both feeding and technology access. So in our DC school, we actually not only had places, opportunities for people to come to the school, but that actually didn't happen. We actually had vans. We had to put technology in the vans and then drive them um, to the families. And that's kind of what happened with our food distribution. We set up so that the, the we created these pantries at both our DC school and our Annapolis school. And it was drive up and we had volunteers. But about a third of the families that we serviced, we still put bags in a van and drove out to their homes and deliver them. So we felt that that was a really important piece. The other thing to remember is it wasn't just our students. So we kind of opened it up to a broader community because the need was so high. Um, one of the problems we haven't quite figured out is the issue of insecure housing. So in DC, more than a quarter of our kids are homeless and the living in the homeless shelters can be really challenging, particularly during COVID. Uh, but more importantly, we have kids where they might spend two nights in one place and then the, the third night in a different place. So their parents are kind of moving around looking for secure places just to sleep at night. And, and when I say that, this is 2001 in the United States of America. And if there are children who aren't exactly sure where they're going to sleep tonight or what they're going to eat tonight, that just sounds so incongruous to who we think we are as a country. So what do we do about that? I mean, what do you do about it? I mean, at the end of the day, you're right. It's heartbreaking and it's crushing. And I, I know that, for example, our neighboring district, I heard this a few years ago. It shocked me. Baltimore County has, I want to say, um, something like. 120,000 students and 5,000 of them on their loose estimation were homeless, which has, as you just mentioned, different definitions. What on earth can a government entity that is a school district or a school do to overcome something like that? So I'd go back to a response that I had earlier. I think it's the, there. there's a lot of money out there, but the money sits in silos and it doesn't connect and there's information out there 
that sits in silos and it doesn't connect, connect and there are efforts out there that sit in silos and don't connect. So I, I really would like to see a case management approach that's multi-agency. And you've seen efforts around that. Uh, in Prince George's County, which you referenced earlier, they had a transforming neighborhood initiative under the previous county executive. The idea was really great. He brought the leaders of all his divisions together and they divided up these communities based on metrics that were pretty astounding. Uh, academic achievement, uh, arrest records, uh, pregnancy issue, uh, birth issues. And even under that effort, it was still very difficult for agencies to talk to each other, share information, and to determine who's actually in charge of this family, who's in charge of the support for this family. So those are things that I think we have to work through. But I would argue that there is a fair amount of money flowing out there. It's just not, it's not being used in a way that's coherent or coordinated. I was looking at your background, Dwayne, and I, I noted that you spent some time in China studying how they handle disabled students uh, in, in that country. Any takeaways as you look back on, on that time about what they were doing right or what they maybe weren't doing as well as we do? What were your thoughts of that experience? Yeah, um, and I'll, I'll contextualize it in, in this way. I was actually in China in 2008. And then I was in China in 2018. And what struck me in 2008 was I came away with the idea that China was in many ways a 19th century country. I saw high rises with coal stacked up in the parking lot to, to heat the building. That was in 2008. In 2018, I see lightning fast trains, very modern cities, um, pollution was better. I mean, it was just the transformation in 10 years was actually stunning. So when we went to the schools, these are the things that struck me. Number one, the adults in the schools in China really cared about their kids and were deeply invested in the children, which I thought was great. But they really struggled with what I would call the science of working with kids with disabilities. They didn't really understand language delay or autism, and they had no tools in their tool belt. However, they had a lot of the latest technology. So uh, the sensory rooms and the software was all there. It, in many ways, much more equipped than I would see in an American school. They just didn't know have the science and the practice behind it, which is actually why we were there. So um, there were a couple of stories that I could relate, but one in particular, a nonverbal um, child with autism who was exhibiting behavior issues. And she was about 14 years old. And she had not been a behavior issue before, but had become very, very aggressive. And they really cared about her. And every time she had a behavior issue, they would call her parents. And they tend to shift the blame to the parent. You need to control your child. They were totally missing her inability to communicate. So imagine a 14-year-old young woman trying to understand her world and not being able to communicate and having no tools to do that. And as they, as she, her behavior became outward, the shame on the family and on the child were really evident. And, and that's really counter to how we would have handled that in the States. I feel like we've been talking about autism for most of my adult life in this country, particularly with education. 
how 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 are we doing in America with it now? I, where are we on the football field? Are we are we are we getting much better at at addressing this? Are parents more comfortable with accessing the 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 tools? Or I, also, I kind of have a sense, Dwayne, that we that most parents struggle with this early and finally get to a place where they're happy. Um, and I do sense that a lot of American parents think that the public school system does uh, offers quite a lot of resources. I also sense that there's a lot of frustration. What what is your take as as a as a practitioner on that on the on the final end of that? I think I'd answer that in two ways. One is from the educator perspective. So I would say in the 70s and 80s, we didn't know what we were doing. Yep. By the time we got to the 90s, we started to identify it and we started to identify best practices. So I saw the change from the ed- educator point of view in the mid 90s and this idea of autism being a communication issue. Um, So we got better. However, from the parent point of view, and it's interesting, we just had a focus group about a month ago. Parents, when you have a child with autism, you feel like the pathway is never clear. And you're in the moment and you pull all these resources together in the moment And then two years later, that moment has changed and the needs have changed. And you feel like it's like no GPS. You're trying to get across the country and you don't have the map only gives you the next 20 miles. That's what it's like being a parent of a child with autism. So, okay, I'm feeling pretty good for the next 20 miles. After that, it's a whole new ballgame and I have to kind of figure that out. And people are very caring and very supportive. But there's no clear roadmap. And, and you might say, well, why don't you just make the roadmap? But it, autism is so complex. And as children go through the stages, their needs really change. Um, and it's really hard on parents. The, the level of emotional anxiety when you're raising a child um, with a disability can be devastating. And uh, parents hold all that in. And, but there have been some terrific sport groups. There are a lot of organizations that have really come together to help parents, but it's it's scary. And um, some kids do really well and have responded well, and then others have um, struggled. And the struggle can be a lifetime. So it's it you know my experience is that it's only anecdotal. I'm no expert like you are, but I I do sense that uh, just diagnosing the various aspects of autism is is something that we are miles away from in this country and under and until you can understand the 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 the, the core problem how do you, how the heck do you put together a solution for education and and uh, addressing the social emotional needs of 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 really any student oh my gosh it's you're right identification has completely changed and pediatricians child find uh, early identification is in a place where it wasn't, I would say just 10 years ago. So uh, it's really different. I, um, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, Dwayne, I mean, the Guild is, is, is known nationwide for its work in this area. What is it about the, the Children's Guild that uh, separates itself from, from the rest of the country? And I, and I say that because I know for a fact in, in my own experience that you were your, your school was hired to come into Annapolis to fill an, a number of needs. This particular one in, 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 
with regards to special ed and, and reducing crowding in Annapolis. What, what is the secret sauce that you guys bring to the table? I, I know that nothing is perfect, but you guys seem to be well separated from others. I think there are two things, and I give our previous CEO, Andy Ross, a lot of credit for both. The first is Andy came out of the uh, domain of social work and residential group homes. And Andy felt very, very strongly that a child's environment sends messages and that the messages that we were sending to kids in congregate care was actually devalued them. And he wanted to kind of flip that. So taking that idea that what adults do in the building, how kids engage in the building, uh, send a lot of messages and and having much more intentionality around those messages and showing that kids are valued. I think that that's a really important thing. Now, what's interesting is every teacher in America would say that they value kids and they care very deeply, but the structure of school and the environments and the schedules may not necessarily address that. And a perfect example is high school starting at 730 in the morning, right? That that just shows that the infrastructure of school overrules what's best for kids. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, I think Andy created a an environment of entrepreneurship that the guild is here to figure out and solve your problem. And I think in large school districts, it's they're like giant cruise ships, right? They're, cruise ships do a lot of things really well, but they don't turn in the Suez Canal that easily. And apparently not. No. So, <laughs> so the guild is is like more like a sailboat. So it can tact and it can it can adapt to the change. So I think this idea of being very intentional about how kids are valued and having this entrepreneurial spirit of in America, if there's a problem, there are people who can figure this out and make it work. And I think the guild kind of embodies both of those worlds. That's great. I um I would add one more and on a positive note, um it seems to me as I hear you speak about how you have gotten in vans and connected families, uh, in many cases, perhaps impoverished families to, to technology. Uh, is, is there a bright side to all of this through how we are becoming more technological in education, both the consumer and the people that export education like you guys do? I mean, what, what, give me a bright spot with all of that we've been through in the last 13 months. So the, that's a good question. And I would say that the districts that had embraced technology pre-COVID weathered COVID, COVID much better. And I think that the, the game has completely changed. And I think the most important thing, and this is my prediction that should go with your February 26th uh, prediction. Yes. I think the difference is that parents are going to demand more choice in September. And what happened over this past year is when we moved to distance learning, some parents actually liked it and some kids liked it. I saw one study that said that 60% of high school kids didn't like distance learning, 60%. 20% said, whatever, it's like no different. And 20% said, I actually like it better. Yep. So I think this idea of technology, distance learning, parents are going to kind of demand that this become a choice option. And it's really interesting. Uh, there was a 
wonderful study done by a Harvard professor. Her name is Karen Mapp. And she studied parents in um, Miami-Dade. And she said there are two kinds of parents, supply parents and demand parents. She said supply parents are the parents who supply schools with their kids. They just, they have no expectation of the school except I'm just going to give my kid to you to the school. Demand parents say, nah, I want something from the school. I have an expectation from the school. And, Karen, and Dr. Mapp's uh, thesis is that affluent families, families with means, tend to be more demand parents. They have these expectations of the school. And I think what COVID has done is expanded that pool of demand parents. So I think school districts in the next 150 days are planning for September and they're not quite ready for the pushback that they're going to get from demand parents who say, you know what, I'm actually not going to send my kid back to school, provide for them. And schools are going to be in this kind of crisis moment come September 15th, September 30th, October 15th, where they're like, what happened to our enrollment? Where are our kids gone? We have to figure out how to get them back. And school systems will have to think in an entrepreneurial and marketing way like they've never done before. So I actually think technology is part of that, but I think that's the mind shift that we're going to see with uh, post-COVID. You, you've heard a lot of what some folks call education reformers call the value of competition. And that's always been sort of um, a, a thought that d never really um, found a lot of enterprise in American education. Charter schools had a role in trying to promote competition, but I don't think anything has come close to what we've done the last year with regards to giving parents the notion that they have options. When you see other neighbors putting their kids in a different public school, a private school, which I understand private school um, has blown up in applications in, in, in the region here in Maryland. Uh, it's fascinating to me to the think that the public schools are now going to have to think through how they publicize what they do in a much more aggressive fashion. Yeah, that's a really good question, Todd. And I'm not sure how I want to respond to it. Sure. I think that there have to be a portfolio of options, but I'm not absolutely sure they have to be competitive. They, they can be collaborative as well. But I think school systems have to move towards this portfolio of options. And I don't think school systems are well suited to be everything to everybody. So if you're not everything to everybody, you have to have the right partners at the table. So I'm going to go back to our earlier conversation about community-based organizations and, and nonprofits and other organizations. I think this is a really good time for school systems to say, we value parent choice. We can do 80% of it, 90% of it. And for the other 10 to 20%, we have these partners. And we will put together this portfolio that will be a good match for your child. And then I think that the dollars can be a little bit more coherent. So that's, that's one way to look at it. I know my wife is in healthcare and she feels very strongly that hospitals should be more collaborative rather than competitive. But in the United States of America, hospitals are actually competitive. They're, they're trying to get that heart surgery at their- Very much so, yes. But she's like, well, how many 
heart surgeons, should it be competitive or should it be collaborative? And I would say that same question goes to public schools. I think there's a room, there's room in the portfolio for a lot of options. And this idea of collaborating across multiple entities just makes sense to me. So a final big question, and I think this is where we're going, you know, forever, the, the notion was you have to go to school. Socialization is enormous. The value of being able to get up and speak to people and being part of a group of effort, which is American education, uh, going to the prom, all those things we valued in this country. And we told our, our children that they have to do that to be successful. All the while in the last 15 years, and you've met some of my clients, Dwayne, who um, hated school. And, and now we know that there are jobs out there where they can quietly code in, their, in the privacy of their own room and, and they're happy doing that. The notion that you have to go be part of the school play, it, 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 it's getting closer to not making as much sense at all as it once made. You know, you just sort of rolled out the notion that, that, these, that there's at least perhaps 20% of students in America that would rather not go be part of the, the prom or the school play. I, I know one of those kids myself quite well. And that is going to now be you know, we've now maybe given lie to the notion that, that you have to go be part of this big social production that is an American high school. And, and instead, you can actually accomplish everything you want to accomplish in this country by quietly learning and not having the what I think is a lot of students have is a lot of anxiety about being social, about fitting some mold that we all thought we needed them to fit, you know, 55 years ago when we were pushing kids into a more traditional school experience. So to answer that question, I'll start with a question. Um, you have two sons, right? And yes, I do. And one son is a, like a great soccer player? Yep. Okay, but he's a great soccer player now, but he probably played t-ball. Yeah, and, he played everything. Yes. Yeah, he played everything. Okay, so that's my point. Yep. I think we have to give kids an opportunity to play everything before they settle on soccer. Yep. And, and I think that schools are a great place to do that. And the big comprehensive high schools, what I like about them is there, there's a place for every kid. There's some place for that kid where it's a little bit harder in a, in a small high school. But you're right. The, the absolute structure of school doesn't actually work for every kid. But I think every kid has to taste from the menu. And then this idea of choice and partners and a portfolio of options becomes available. So... Um, I would say let's let's take a bite of everything on the table and see where it kind of sets and and schools can can be that I think. Well, hopefully this experience will will make I, it's my little sappy dream Dwayne that this that every negative thing that happens makes us better and I and that is my uh, hope with what's what we've gone through for the last year. Uh it's been a lot of uh, struggle for my sons. I, I can only imagine what it's like for, for parents that don't have uh, access to the most basic aspects of what we've talked about today, internet and food and anxiety and where are you staying tonight? Uh, so great conversation, Dwayne. Um, how can our audience get a hold of you? Are you out there publicly on Twitter uh, if, they, if they feel like they want to reach out? Uh, I'm on LinkedIn and, and of course my email. I'm not, the only time I use Twitter 
is if something interesting is hot, like Twitter is like great for instant information. Yep. Uh, but no, I'm, I, I have to admit, I'm not strong on Twitter, but I'm I am not. on LinkedIn and I am, uh, and then there's my email. So I, I mean, don't even do Facebook. There so. was a certain president a, a few months ago who um, made a lot of news on Twitter. I, I guess I haven't really checked Twitter since he left. <laughs> my favorite times to watch Twitter are during sporting events. So yep. you can see what people are saying and Game of Thrones. When I was when Game of Thrones each episode, I would stay on Twitter just to see how people were reacting. So we try to mix in a little bit of popular culture in this show. We don't always dive only into the hot topics of education. What is a uh, what is a Netflix uh, show that you're you're watching now or that you might recommend on on uh, that's streaming these days? It's so funny, you know. Everybody is is rating their own Netflix show. the the jo The shows that I've really enjoyed in the past year, Broadchurch. We're watching Sherlock, the BBC version, which we really enjoy. We're uh, just finished Ted Lasso on Apple TV. Love that, and we're watching The Durells of Corfu on Amazon Prime. Oh, okay. Have you I seen love that? It. No, my love I, sounds great. So start with Ted Lasso. Deal. It's it's worth. Uh, it's worth watching. Well, Dr. Dwayne Arbogast, thank you for joining us. A uh, really cool conversation. I, um, you are the first person we've had on the show over the last year um, that allows us to really dive into the complexities of, of special education, particularly, and then the technology hurdles that we we are seeing with regards to COVID and, and the, the, the predictions that you've made in the past and hopefully the predictions that you're making in the future. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate you being on the show. And uh, again, uh, keep keep letting me know uh, your, your hunches. Maybe we can figure out a way to make some money on your next one. Thank you, Todd. Always a pleasure. Very good, Dwayne. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of On The Clock. If you want to learn more about the show, please visit www.strategosgroup.com. Please consider subscribing on your podcast streaming platform so you don't miss out on our next episode. And until next time, I'm Todd Dallas-Lamb, signing off. <laughs>